Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this week I have the great pleasure to introduce the Senior Product Manager for Alfa Romeo at Stellantis, Rob Lake. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, Guy. Pleasure to be here and, uh, and talking to you. Yeah, and glad to have you. What we've done traditionally on these podcasts is before we start to talk about the subject of the podcast, we start to talk about the, the person we're talking to. And the thing that's always struck me is how different Alfa Romeo is from some of those other car companies. You know, we had Damien on uh, 18 months or so ago. Damien's a club member, owns a 916 Spider. And we spoke to James Brown in just before Christmas. James is the next Alfa Championship racer. Those are not necessarily the kind of credentials you'd find if you were talking to somebody from from other other car brands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so given our audience, yeah. um, t- tell us a little bit about your Alfa history and, and then club history, indeed. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I've I'm very much a car nut and a petrol head, and I've, I've been connected with cars since. You know, my, one of my first Saturday jobs at sort of 14 was um, working in a garage. So I've, I've always been very hands-on, which is why... That was about seven, seven or eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish. Some of my joints, maybe, but yeah. Um, but um, so, you know, I've, I've always been connected with cars and stuff. And, and from a very early age, I've had an alliance to the kind of the Fiat and Alfa Romeo brands. So I've I was known by my friends as the as the the Italian specialists. So we had we had a couple of us that were working on cars at the time and were apprentices and whatever. And, and one of them was a was a French and a diesel specialist and I was the Italian specialist. So if it was if it was a Fiat or an Alfa, I tended to get those jobs, which was always a joy. So so yeah, so all my career really I've been connected with cars one way or another. But I've had I think up to the point of the, when I got my first company car at about 25, I'd had by that point 17 Fiat's and Alfa Romeos. And I'd already been restoring cars since I was about 17 years old. And one of the first ones I did when I first joined the club was probably, I don't know, the, I meant to look, I've still got the trophy, it's next to my bed. I meant to look at the trophy this morning to see what year was on it, but it was a, a Mark II Alphasud that I restored, bought from a, a local independent in, um, in St. Albans called Dom Pepe Motors. And anybody in that area who's been around for a while will, will know Dom Pepe for sure. But yeah, so I restored that and that came to one of the, the National Alpha meets at Wimpole Hall about 30 years ago when I was about 20, 21, and given my age away now, and won the best Alphasud at the show. And sadly, I don't have the car, as, as so often happens. This became part of a deposit for my first house, but I still have the trophy because I wasn't going to, I know some people do, I wasn't going to let that go with the car because I'd worked hard to, to make this beautiful, beautiful sad. And I've, I've had others, you know, since GTVs and things like that. And I currently have, which I've had for nine years now, a Zoe Yellow 916 Spider. So... And that's even ended up being infectious because my brother also has a blue 916 Spider. So, um, yeah, I've pretty much had, be it on and off slightly, Alfa Romeo's all my life since since I could drive. So, um, and do to this day, you know, I, I don't just drive an Alfa because it's my company car. I actually physically own one, which I maintain myself. So I'm very, very hands-on in that respect. Brilliant. So I think that, that establishes very much that you are one of us. You're an Alfa so the purpose of having you on the call today is, is to talk about the Tenale. The board were, were lucky enough 
earlier this week to to come up to Coventry and and see a car in the flesh, which was fantastic, and and we're all very grateful for that. Um, I just wanted before we start to talk about the car itself, I just wanted to talk about the kind of the path that's led Alpha to the product range that it it has today. I mean, Julia and Stelvio, multi award winning. You know, regularly described as the best sports saloon ever, or all of that kind of stuff. Couldn't really be much better from a, a, a product management perspective, I guess. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. But I, I think there is a, a sense amongst, particularly amongst older alpha owners or, or more long standing alpha owners, that, that an SUV isn't the kind of car that that alpha should be making. You know, it should be GTs and, and, and V6s and convertibles and, and all the other stuff that we've loved over over sure. the years. So I just wanted to explore that a bit. I mean, I, you had some some interesting stats in the presentation you gave to us on Tuesday about the way the the market's shifting. So if you kind of, kind of take the the most common comment that we see about the announcement of Tenale is, yeah, that's nice, but where's the replacement for a Giulietta? If you could just talk us through what's happening in the market around the traditional segments and and the newer ones. Sure, yeah, it's um, you know, I'm a I'm a lover of of the older stuff myself, to be honest. So I I fully get everybody's comments. I mean, the reality is, with the exception of convertibles, etc., which which has always been maybe slightly a car maker's folly because we build them because we like them and we know our customers like them, but. In terms of overall sort of profit, which at the end of the day, you know, we are a company and the company has to make money to survive, then they don't provide a, a great deal of that. So the sporting saloons and hatchbacks and, and things of that nature, I mean, we're well known for those. And they were, of course, built at a time when this was the product that was what the market was demanding. And what we've seen over the last, probably longer, to be honest, but over the last five years and certainly over the last three is that all the traditional segments year after year are in pretty much rapid decline. People aren't buying these cars for a number of reasons. And also, realistically, one of these reasons in the, in the modern day is there is no such thing as a cheap car anymore. Do you know what I mean? I remember my dad, the only brand new car we ever had, my dad in 1984 bought a Fiat Uno 45 for £3,300. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. <laughs> Cars like that, especially in the new electrified age, unfortunately, won't exist because the technology doesn't support that kind of price point. So as manufacturers pull out of these segments, they shrink. Customers no longer actually are buying these segments because they don't fit what the new car buyer. And what we're seeing is, is massive growth in the SUV segments, in particular I0, which is the BSUV, which I can't confirm, you know, or deny really, but rumor has it we have one coming. Um, may or may not be called Brenner, right? Yeah, I, 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 you know, we won't get on to that. And I1, which is, which is Tonali. And I1 at the minute is experiencing the, the second largest growth behind the, the I0, behind the BSUV. But it is to date the largest segment. So I1 this year, currently year to date, 23.8% of, of the market. So just about one in every four cars sold is an I segment, an I SUV, an I1 SUV, so CSUV car. And currently year to date, 52%, so more than a half of all cars sold are SUVs. 
And SUV also, I think, is a term we can get we can get hung up on slightly because it's really a car manufacturer term for how we class these cars. I mean, you've seen Tonali. It isn't a great big, tall SUV-type proposition, if you like. Sure, it's taller than a Giulietta, but the height difference is probably when people see it in the metal, and I, I can't wait for more people to see this car in the flesh because um, it, it's so much... It's, it is a lot different, I think, than when you see it on the page, as so many cars are. But, you know, this car is only a bit higher than a Julia, so it's 160 tall. For most people standing next to it, your eye line goes straight over the top of the roof. It's not like you you can't see the roof or you're looking up to it. So when people, and there are a lot of people that don't like SUVs, and I completely get that as well. Why do we need them on our tiny little island? But this is what people are demanding. This is what fits with people's lives. We no longer as a, as a nation or globally even really buy estate cars. People would rather have the SUV than an estate, generally speaking. There are exceptions, but generally speaking, because it gives the same kind of capability. It's, it's better height-wise, be that for, you know, maybe those of us with slightly creaky knees these days getting in and out or, or just putting the kids in the back and stuff like that. You're lifting the kids up into a seat. You're not stooping down with a, with a heavy child to get it in the seat. And it just seems to fit people's lives, which is why we're selling the cars. There's also rationale in terms of electrification that, you know, you can carry the batteries and stuff underneath, which gives it this bit more height. But with a traditional car, you can't so easily. So there's lots of reasons why things are going that way. Some of it's manufacturer-led, to be fair, but a lot of it is consumer-led, and that's certainly the pattern. I, think, I guess some of that also fixes some of the criticisms of, of SUVs in the past. So if, if one of the, the problems has always been roll and the, the high centre of gravity, but I guess ultimately if you've got a load of batteries low down underneath the, underneath the floor, exactly. that brings the centre of gravity down enormously. Absolutely, the, the weight's carried low down. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this, this car is an alpha and it has to drive like an alpha. We wouldn't let it out the door if it didn't. Well, we'll, we'll, come, on, we'll come on to that bit in a minute. So we know that's where the growth is. Obviously, yeah, Imperato's talked about wanting to do some more traditional cars. And, and I think some people kind of look at that and say, okay, well, this is the way to fund those cars and, and and i guess that's true on one level if you don't sell these cars you don't fund the other ones absolutely but there's more to it than that isn't it? i mean it, if alpha is going to be taken out to a bigger audience mm-hmm. it needs to sell cars that the audience is buying you know we've got we've got four and a half thousand members if we all bought a tonale yeah that would, wouldn't be a bad year for the model given the last couple of years sales but it wouldn't be yeah, you know, it wouldn't be an earthquake in the in in the motor industry if you sold four and a half thousand tonnes. No, absolutely. So it has to appeal to people beyond the club, and hopefully we'll bring those people into the club. But um, yeah. it can't just be something for for our enthusiasts exclusively. No, absolutely. There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, as you as you quite rightly say, to some extent, these cars will then fund the the projects that we're all waiting for. Should we say? And, you know, something needs to fund those, and it's this kind of car that does that the market's demanding. So this is the volume, and those other fun, more fun projects are won't be such a high volume, but they will be delivering what the Alfisti require. We need to attract a wider audience, for sure, and I think this car will do it. We know, you know, we know there's a lot of people out there that at some point have considered an Alfa Romeo, or, or they've kind of admired them from a distance. They, they love how beautiful they are and how they look and the, the materials in them and all that kind of thing, but have for some rational reason not bought one. 
And we really do think that this could be the car that changes that because this car will tick all the boxes that the, most of the new car buyers are looking for. And the other market it will open up to us as well is, is something we've not played in for a number of years, which is the fleet market, especially when PHEV arrives. So fleet customers or anybody buying a car for a, a business purpose that is concerned with benefit in kind tax, at the minute, as, as lovely as Julia and Stelvio are, it's not often a chosen option because of CO2 liabilities and tax liabilities. Tonali won't have that problem, especially in PHEV form. You know, So I haven't got the data on CO2 for, for you at the minute, but it will be, we expect, you know, sort of low 40s would be where we expect it to be. So the benefit in kind will be minimal. And that has the potential to, to almost double volumes I'm not going to say overnight, but as these people change their cars, that's 50, 60% of the current I1 segment that we don't have access to. And it's going to give us access to those people. And some of those may well be Alfisti, may well be people who are drop or have in their collection or in their garage an older Alfa Romeo or a Spider or something that they love. But on a day to day basis, they're driving a, an X1 or a, a Q3 or something like that because. It's a company car, and that's what they get. They can now choose to have an Alfa Romeo to replace that. So, yeah, it should pull in customers or enhance the lives of our existing customers multiple times over for us. And, and part of the fleet story, of course, is residuals, and we'll come on to that yeah. later on. When we first got hold of a, a Stelvio, um, I think it's fair to say I was as sceptical about SUVs as anybody. Mm. And I think in particular skeptical that you could make an SUV that was an Alpha. And and the the closing paragraph of my Stelvio Quadrifoglio review was just don't be in any doubt this is every inch a, a real Alpha Romeo. So I just wanted to explore a little bit, you know, given that the market's where it is, whether people like it or not, Alpha has to build SUVs, will build SUVs, has to make a success of, of selling SUVs. So if if that's going to happen, they have to be different to everybody else's cars. And, and they have to deliver on that sense of, of being a real alpha. Mm-hmm. But it's actually, when you talk to people, it's quite difficult to put into words what that really means. I mean, what do you think a real alpha is? What are the, the things that define alpha? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the two things, the two boxes it absolutely has to tick is... Um, and I will use Tonali as an example because you know we're, we're talking about Tonali managed today, but the car has to be beautiful. So using Tonali as an example, the I1 segment is full of, I'm not going to knock any competitors, it's full of very good cars. And a lot of them are very striking looking cars. The Alpha is different because, and this is something that we've been showing people this week, the car that, that we've kind of said, and, and I've looked for feedback on see because if anybody disagrees with me, I'm more than happy to you know, hear a, a rational reason why they think I'm wrong. But the Alfa Romeo isn't just a striking-looking car. It is the most beautiful car in the segment. And this is what an Alfa has to be. It has to pass what we used to call the two-second test. As soon as you look at it, you know whether you want that car or not in terms of its design, its styling, its features. And the Sonali, for sure, when you see it in the metal, I think does that. Obviously, if an SUV isn't what you want, then you would rationally reject it on that basis but for somebody open to an suv the styling has blown everybody away within that it has to retain some of alpha's heritage i think in terms of its design and the tonali again does that we've spoken about the gt lines 
down the side, the headlamps taken from things like the SZ and the RZ in terms of design. Uh, the way that feeds through to the back with the, the full width lighting panel as seen on the you know, facelifted 33s, the 916, the 164. So, and of course, the telephone dial wheels. It wouldn't be an Alfa Romeo if it didn't have telephone dial wheels in there. So in terms of its design, an Alfa has to set itself apart because it has to be whichever Alfa we're talking about whenever it was launched at that moment in time. It has to be very much about the future, but has to be reflective of Alfa Romeo's past, and it has to be beautiful. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing that, that will mark an Alfa out from everything else is the way it drives in terms of ride, handling, and steering. And the Alfa Romeos, with their sporting heritage and with the, the sort of the glorious models of its, its sporting past, have always delivered on that. And, you know, Tonali will be no different either. It's We measure it against its basket of CSUV competitors, if you like, and even down to things such as suspension filtering, where it's over 30% better in terms of, um, I won't go into talking about acceleration in terms of G and stuff like that, but 30% better than its competitors in the way it deals with obstacles and stuff on the road. The, uh, the lean angle, again, specific for Alfa Romeo, 20% better than its basket of SUV competitors. Because we know our customers will buy an Alfa Romeo and they will expect it to drive in a sporting manner. So this car certainly has to deliver on that. And, and Alfa is obsessed with things like weight distribution, making sure everything's centered between the axles. Uh, steering, I mentioned, any Alfa Romeo has to have that sporting feel through through the steering. And again, Tonali here ticks this box. It's with a 13.6 to 1 steering ratio, it's got the sharpest steering in its segment. Very Alfa Romeo. So not only is it beautiful, does it look like an Alfa Romeo, it's going to ride and handle and steer like an Alfa Romeo as well. And I think it's all that sort of wrapped up sporting heritage and beauty of design that makes an Alfa yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had this conversation a, a couple of times with people in the context of, of Tonali and otherwise, and I, I, I kind of have a problem with the the beautiful description. Okay. Two of my two of my favourite Alphas are the seventy five and, and the SZ, and and nobody could describe a seventy five as beautiful. But you know, it, it, there's something about the look of that car, and it, it's it's kind of almost it's not quite as much beautiful as you look at it and it makes you smile. And the, the, there's there's something that is uniquely alpha about about the star. And you talk about the GT line on the on the Tonale, yes. and they mentioned that in the the launch video. And mm -hmm. I I kind of watched the video and I thought, you sure? Because I can't see it, but you see the car in the flesh, and it's and absolutely it's really obvious. Yeah. Uh, the, the other one which uh, I hadn't noticed, and, and I don't don't remember from the launch video, but is is really characteristic. Um, and a silly little thing, but the, the rear windscreen shape um, yeah. almost looks like it could have been lifted off a, a 147, but there's hints of Brera and hints of 8C in there as well. And, and to me, visually, obviously the, the front end's very different, but the car it reminds me of most is the 147. I mean, it's and, and that kind of 147 era design language going all the way back to the, the Kamal in whatever it was, 2004, the, the first. Alpha SUV, I guess, although it never made it beyond the concept stage. There's there's definitely some similarities between the, the shapes and the, the curves on an SUV that you don't see anywhere else. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's other little touches, I think, on there that again kind of go without without noticing, but I'm 
forgive me if I if I get this wrong, but the 147, maybe it was the facelifted one, even had a little bump over the top of the badge on the front in the bonnet. Yeah. And again, Tonali has that as well. It's just a it's a little design detail that's very easy to miss, but it's there and it, it's taken from Alfa Romeo's history. So I've been doing this game a long time and um, I've launched a lot of cars. I've been a product manager for 20 years and I've launched a lot of cars for a lot of brands. And... We can be super critical as product managers, and this is part of our job. You know, it's, it's as important to us what's wrong with the car as what's right, if you like. And I've walked around this car, and I can't find anything wrong with it. There's things that people will have in terms of a preference. They might have preferred something a slightly different way, but but technically, there is this car is perfect in my view. And we know Alpha can build a, a good handling SUV because we, you know. My first experience in the Stelvio was at Goodwood. Yes. Um, and I remember getting to about the end of lap three and thinking, hang on, I'm in an SUV. <laughs> this is not a hot hatch I've been throwing around the circuit for the last three laps. This is a, what the Americans originally called a light truck. Yes. And it's just, just an incredible... Stelvio is, Stelvio is outstanding. And I, I can't remember the quote exactly, so, um, so forgive me for not coming up with that. But I mean, even Clarkson, who is a notorious SUV hater and whether you love the man or, or, or not he you know obviously is, is well regarded and well known and he even said this is like the one SUV that that I would consider I forget his exact words but that was that was essentially what he said just to, just as proof as what an outstanding car that is and that's in normal form take it in quadrifolio form but it's absolutely exceptional so we've talked about the, the looks and I think yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's it's both distinctive and the best looking car in its class by by some way. You talked about some of the the handling characteristics and why that should make it again one of the the best performers in in the class. I guess the third part of of what makes an alpha is is the kind of um, for want of a better word the the peppiness of the of the driving experience, the the willingness of the engine and the way they perform. And it's not a power thing or a speed thing because it doesn't matter whether it's a you know 1.3 GT Junior from the 60s or an Alpha Sud 1.2 or a, a Busso engine V6. There's something about the way the engine performs. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, regardless of size or... Yeah, I think I mentioned before, I have, I have a 916 Spider, and I mean, I don't have the V6, I have the 2-litre Twin Spark, and that's at 155 horsepower. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's not a huge amount of power, but it's enough, and the way it delivers it, and the noise with which it delivers it, it's got a lovely zinging tone to that, that Twin Spark engine, and I just think it's, it's, it's glorious, which is why... You know, I didn't I didn't settle for a two-liter twin spark. I chose a two-liter twin spark. Yeah. That was the engine I wanted for the balance for the car. And yeah, this this car will be no different. I mean, looking at the what will I don't have the weights, but will undoubtedly be the heaviest, which will be the PATV with all the extra batteries and larger electric motor and stuff. Yeah, that's going to be 275 horsepower. That's going to have Q4 all-wheel drive, a, a well-regarded alpha feature. Right from was talk the one five five touring cars, you know it's a it's a different system, but it's yeah the Q four badge is is again part of Alpha's history and it and it's there and it's delivering on it, and so this will be our most powerful car in the range at the minute, but it will also be the lowest on CO two. It will be the most economical. It will be the one with the Q four four wheel drive. It's gonna 
this is really going to deliver everything we'll now from my own customer would expect from their car. The 1.5, from what I'm told, also will do as well. I'm, I'm, I'm yet to get behind the wheel of the 1.5, and I'm looking forward to doing that. So I'm not going to make you any promises that, on that one. That but one all that the engineers, engine is, is yeah. a development of the 1.3 multi-air Firefly engine, is it? It's well, the I mean, the engine and transmission package is all is all sort of as a whole is kind of new for Alpha. So, for example, it, it runs on the the Miller cycle rather than the Otto cycle. So it was right. specifically developed to run as a hybrid engine and to run with the with a turbocharger. The gearbox is very specific for Alfa Romeo because it has the electric motor built into it. It's not a belt-driven mild hybrid motor, for example. So, so these are all new things for us. And well, I can't... They'll, be, they'll be new to a lot of our listeners as well. So just probably worth spending a little bit of time talking about the difference between mild hybrid and VHEV. Let's take a step back first. So on the launch video, there were four engines. Yeah. Um, and, and they made it quite clear that the two-litre petrol was North America and I think Middle East only. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody understands why. Um, yeah. I, I suspect most people understand why the diesel is not coming as well. So that leaves us with with the mild hybrid and the, and the plug-in. And traditionally, mild hybrid has, I think, for, particularly for those who would really desperately like to cling on to internal combustion engines for... Mm-hmm for as long as possible, and the more extreme end of the electric crowd has always felt like a little bit of a fudge in that, yeah, some of the mild hybrids are a little more than... A big alternator, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's using brake regen to supplement the alternator, yeah. um, which doesn't really do a lot for anything very much apart from taking a little bit of load off the engine to charge the battery. Yeah. Um, but but as you as you were starting to explain, the, the MHEV in the, in the Tonale different to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this car, as I say, has the 55 newton meter electric motor built into the gearbox. So, so 55 newton meter of electric torque, 135 newton meter electric motor built into the gearbox. So this car, unlike, it's not unique, I'm not going to claim it's unique, but unlike most of the mild hybrids you will find, can power itself under electric power completely on its own. So for like like mostly low speed maneuvers, so um, parking or crawling in traffic, especially in you know urban areas, perfect. It can do all that purely on electric power. Um, for cruising at sort of motorway speeds and stuff, it can it can join in with the engine and it can provide extra boost, or it can just help take some of the load off the engine to reduce emissions, reduce consumption, all that kind of thing. So. It really is for the for that type of engine, that type of transmission, not just in this segment, but across all segments, really, for a mild hybrid. It's it almost sits somewhere really between a mild hybrid and a hybrid. And I guess from from both sorts of environmental perspectives, that kind of creeping along in traffic is is one of the worst things because it's it's terrible for consumption because uh, the engines behave in a way it doesn't really want to behave. And it's also from from what we used to think of environmentalism. It's the worst thing for for tailpipe emissions. Absolutely. So if you can reduce that, that that's a big hit in in two key areas. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, it, it will give you really much lower CO two as well than um, than a conventional turbo petrol engine, which to the consumer as well has benefits in terms of of tax. I'm obviously not to plug in hybrid or hybrid levels, but certainly probably uh, the easiest analogy you have to make off the top of my head, I suppose, is more diesel-like than petrol-like in terms of tax liability. Right. And, and then on to the one that I'm going to order. 
tell us a bit about this 275 horsepower plug-in. Okay, yeah, so that's um, up front, across the, the front axle, that's got 180 horsepower, 1.3 multi-air turbo petrol engine. And of course, the multi-air is an engine we're familiar with and we, we very sort of tried and tested and well-proven engine. Um, and then across the, the rear axle, it has a 90 kilowatt electric motor. The electric purely drives the rear axle, the petrol purely drives the front axle, but between the two, it gives you kind of on-demand Q4 all-wheel drive. One of the things to anybody who's who's driven a plug-in hybrid or had a plug-in hybrid, a lot of them can have, shall we say, not quite the desired range that a lot of people would would like. They provide exactly what they promised to provide in terms of you've got 30, 35 miles worth of electric power backed up by a petrol tank to do several hundred more on, more on petrol. The Tonali will give you a full range of up to 600 kilometers. So it's more in terms of the kind of range that you would buy any car, any petrol car, if you like, you would expect to get from that. Oh, I dream, dream of getting 400 miles out of the V6 fighter, but yeah. Yeah, so it will, it will deliver that. And, and on electric only, it will deliver up to 80 kilometers, which is about 52, 53 miles, I think, of electric range. So, I mean, I drive a plug in at the minute as my sort of company car, my day to day. And, you know, the range kind of stops at 30 something miles. And it's, whilst it's nice for around town, there's, there's, you often are just slightly short of what you need. And Tonali, at, at over 50 miles of electric range, will, will deliver. Um, precisely what people ask for. The combined power output of these two as well gives you 275 horsepower, so which is on anything less than a quadrifolio is absolutely sufficient. And even the battery for its segment is quite an advanced, not even just for its segment, it's quite an advanced battery. So 15 and a half kilowatt hours, 100 kilowatt battery from this uh, lithium ion high voltage battery pack, which is carried then between the, uh, the two axles. So all the weight on this car, again, for, for ride and handling to, to drive up now from I should, very much centred between the axles. There's nothing sort of protruding over either end of the axles. And, and if you forgive the, the biology pun, there's a, another link to Alpha's genetics, going back <laughs> at least as far as the, um, as the, the DNA switch. Is the DNA switch, and that, that behaves in some interesting ways in the PNGV, doesn't it? Yeah, so I mean the DNA switch that we've seen in in all alphas since the the Mito again appears here, and it will control all the things that you would expect it control. So it will control engine response. It will control with the cars like the Veloce with electronic dampers and stuff, the two stage dampers. It will control those. It controls the the safety systems and the traction systems. But in terms of the the powertrains, what it will also do. So on the on the hybrid in the plug in hybrid particularly. In advanced efficiency mode, it will lock that car purely into electric. So advanced efficiency just means electric power only. The, the natural will give you the best balance of both worlds. And then, of course, dynamic will, will lean much more heavily towards the petrol engine for the, the kind of more spirited, shall we say, driving that you may wish to, uh, to participate in. And it will use the electric motor more as a, what they call e-boost. So be that for acceleration or be that for extra power at any required Because it's, it's all you ever use the, the absolutely. last horsepower for anyway. And, of course, to drive the, the Q4 four-wheel drive as well. So, so yeah, so on, on D, and I think a lot of people with these switches don't see anything other than D. Don't know what you mean. <laughs> I know mine rarely does. 
Yeah. So it, it will con- control the way the, the the motors are working together. And I, I know you haven't driven one yet either, but presumably if you're in a and it runs out of charge, it'll automatically switch into to a yes, it will do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even if it's in advanced efficiency, yeah, it will. Um, the one thing I don't know that I haven't seen is does it just fire up the petrol motor or does it automatically then switch it into natural? That I will be testing as soon as I get hold of one. But, but yeah, it would certainly. Yeah, it, you wouldn't just suddenly stop. Yeah, you'd move into the. Yeah. Yeah. The petrol mode. So I, I want to talk about things like trim level because some, there's some more familiar bits of, of Alpha's DNA in there in terms of at least the, the naming strategy. But if, before we do, there's a couple of other things I wanted to pick up on. We talked about residuals. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, there's been a lot of talk about NFT and blockchain. And um, I think I, I made the point on Tuesday, given the, um, the, the fuss about the emissions around cryptocurrency, as to whether NFT and blockchain will eventually have to be built into the, the CO two emissions figure, um, yeah. but I don't think I don't think it's a heavy use of, of blockchain calculation. But just tell us a little bit about what's being done in terms of residuals and how the the NFT blockchain story fits into that. Sure. So for those, I mean, for those listeners that perhaps don't know what it is, essentially what it gives the car is a digital passport. Is probably the easiest way to, to to look at it. So this this will record everything from the, the the kind of the build specification of the car, including options and stuff like that. It will include all of its maintenance, service, and repair history throughout the life cycle. So you know it's, it's a digital service history, but it's beyond the digital service history because it's including repair and stuff as well. Uh, and also with with user permissions, it will record stuff. For example, like how the car is being used, how it's being driven. And I, I, I stress the with user permission because obviously that's not something that appeals to everybody. But for those that it does and to support the residual values, you know, when you come to sell that car, both for you as proof as to exactly what has happened to that car, complete unfalsifiable digital record, it provides that. And for the, the, the person then buying that as a used proposition, they have an absolute guarantee of, of how that car has, has behaved, been treated, which will help the residual values enormously. Uh, we're talking to the residual value companies about that at the minute. They're asking us for a lot more information on it, which I'm uh, extracting from from HQ. And I mean, this is a this is a global first for Alfa This is on top of all the other things that we've talked about in terms of new segments, sales channels we've not been able to tap into for years, that kind of thing. I mean, this is another game changer for Alfa Romeo. This is an absolute burst on any car globally. I'm looking forward to seeing where the residual values end up, but it's it's certainly going to be supportive of that, which with most cars being bought on finance these days, the residual values for the new customer are important both ends because it makes the car cheaper for them to buy up front. And... If they keep it to dispose of it, or if they're buying it at the end of the PCP or something, you know, it's, it's going to support them at the end when they come to sell it. So uh, it's an important piece of a change in the way I think how cars are built and what's included in them in terms of new technology. One of the, the things that consistently drives me mad with press reviews about the Julia and the Silvio is, is you get reviews, yeah, it drives better than everything else in the segment, and yeah, it looks better than everything else in the segment. But the in-car entertainment's nowhere near as good as the Germans, which I, I don't even necessarily agree with, and and I just don't see it as a you know a, a key reason why you would make a decision to buy a car or not buy a car. But 
it, it is a regular, consistent criticism gone down a bit as as the more recent model years have, have come out and people have been happier with the upgrades. But there's a huge amount of work that's been done on Tonale to take that from as good as it needed to be to yeah, best in class. Absolutely, yeah. They've they've done a the engineers have done an outstanding job really with the with the infotainment systems. So we now have, I mean, in terms of screen size, twenty two point five inches across the two screens in the car. So this is this is the biggest combined screen size in the segment with the best resolution. The central screen has is a widget based application. So as we've seen in Julia and Stelvio, so you can move stuff around and configure it as you like. The, the dials that sit underneath the, the canocchiale in front of the, the driver can be configured in a number of different ways. So you can have something that looks very modern or you can have something that looks very retro. And I think the retro dials actually are beautiful. I've had a lot of comments on those this week, including you know from staff and people as well. And, and staff sometimes can be our harshest critics and, um, and they're saying, oh yeah, we'd, we'd have the, uh, the heritage style instruments up all the time. In terms of the audio, I mean, as with Julia and Stelvio, the, the audio is developed in conjunction with Harman Kardon and the top of the range audio itself is 14 speaker Harman Kardon branded system. And there's a tie in with Amazon Alexa as well. So you can, as, as well as with Alpha Connect, but you can also talk to the car from the comfort of your armchair, you know, set your sat nav up for the day and, and check you've got enough charge and all that kind of thing, or, or vice versa, add stuff to your shopping list from the comfort of your car if you suddenly realize you've forgotten grapefruits. Um, and have them leave a parcel in the boot. And exactly, yeah. If, if you like to, you can use the the Amazon delivery service to deliver a parcel directly to your car. It's, it's yeah. funny when I heard when I first heard that, my my instant reaction was, "Well, hang on a minute. If they're <laughs> delivering and I'm out, the car will be with me, so that's not going to work." Mm -hmm. um, and then I remembered how much time I spend on Zoom calls like this one, and actually the ability to to have them not knock on the front door or ring the doorbell while I'm on a, a video call. And just yes. put the parcel in the boot is actually absolutely. I mean, job change is probably taking it a bit far, but the job base nice people as well. Yeah. People who are away working in hotels for conferences and things a lot of the time. Well, your car's in the hotel car park. You could have something delivered to the boot. Maybe people with occupations where maybe it's not a good example, but just to use a thing that's something maybe an obvious example: nurses or doctors who can't come to reception to receive a parcel because yeah. you know are in the middle of doing something slightly more important. Uh, I haven't thought of that use case. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have had, as a photographer, I've had camera equipment sent to hotels, you know, while, I, while I've been there and always felt a little bit funny about, not that I don't trust hotel receptionists, but mm. yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting additional use for it. So there are, there's lots of different, it will fit people's lives in different ways. I mean, there was, for sure, there will be some people who are, you know, horrified by the thought of letting their Amazon driver into the boot of their car. Don't use it. Exactly. Absolutely. This is, this is the, uh, the answer. But for a lot of other people, it will be a, a very useful tool to have, even if it's only on occasion. So I've got two, two more things to talk about. The first one, um, I think is, is pretty straightforward. So again, we talked about the, the link to the heritage in, in various different ways. There's, there's three levels of trim yes. available on the car, isn't there? Yeah. So for the for the UK, we're, we tend to sell a very high end of equipment. The UK car buyer generally really loves their cars. They generally want the best and they want all the, the bells and whistles. So 
the UK range will start with a TI. A badge, as, as you quite rightly say, you know, is, is a very, was it Turismo Internationale, very much part of Alpha's history. Um, and this this will be more of the kind of the luxury trim, if you like. It will give you all the features you're expecting, um, including 18-inch diamond alloy wheels, um, the gloss black body kit, automatic wipers, this, that, and everything else, cloth and vegan leather seats, and it will give you the, the big screens and, and navigation system. And I suppose one thing I didn't actually mention on the infotainment was this car is highly capable for over-the-air updates. So be that to update programs within the car for its operation or even be that to add new functions and new facilities. This, this car is purely set up to do that, and that navigation system again, we'll receive over-the-air updates, so the maps will always be up-to-date. And uh, is there any plans, as far as you're aware, for, for a kind of marketplace on that? Because I'm just thinking of, I have a Samsung Galaxy watch, and technology is the same as the Crocchiale. And if I want a new watch face, I can download a new watch face. So is there any plans, as far as you're aware, to do new skins for the, the instrumentation? Very interesting question, actually. There's not any plans as far as I know. That doesn't mean to say they're not working on it. But I will actually, I think as I've said to you before, I'm always interested in feedback. I will take that suggestion and I will feed it back to Italy to say, hey, guys, this might be a good idea if you're not already working on it. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be a nice thing to be able to do, yeah. So um, that's TI. No plans as far as I'm aware. Right, right, yeah. Um, so that's TI. Uh, the next trim up will be the Veloce. Veloce on everything we sell is by far, I mean, we have the highest quadrifolio mix on the other models in, in Europe pretty much. So, um, but Veloce is always our biggest seller. You know, if you, Veloce is, is synonymous really with Alfa Romeo, I think. So, I mean, this takes all that luxury equipment of the TI, but adds a more sporting edge to it. So you're getting 19-inch alloy wheels rather than 18. So you're getting aluminium door seals, sports pedals, shift paddles, uh, you know, Alcantara trimming on the seats and stuff like that. So it gives it a much more sporting edge. And then for launch, the plan is, and we're still working on everything at the minute, so please forgive me, not everything is 100% bolted down, but the plan is that this car will be available for ordering until the end of the year is the launch edition, which will be the Speciale. Again, another badge that goes back to the, some of your listeners will know better than I will probably, but certainly back to the 60s, I think, the Speciale. And this will be a Veloce-based car. And I say, just purely a launch edition, and along with badging and a few other little touches around the car, we'll have, again, inch bigger wheels, 20-inch wheels on the Speciale. Be priced... The plan is between the TI and the Veloce. And part of the reason it achieves that price point is the Veloce will have the electronic dual stage damping and the Speciale won't. So the Speciale sits nicely between the TI and the Veloce and the Veloce still has a, a more sporting edge. And that, that's the car that we saw on Tuesday, isn't it? That was a Speciale. Speciale yeah. yeah, and we'll, we'll cover that in the, the next issue of the magazine, which is out in April. Okay. Yeah, it seems like a long time away, but it isn't, isn't really. Cool. And then the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, and I, uh, it's, it's probably more in terms of what the plans are than what the answer is, is ordering and pricing. Okay. So I can give you some date. I can give you some months because everything is a little bit bit loose at the minute. So um, well, months, please, months is more precise than quarters. So that's please, uh, please don't shoot me at National Alpha Day if some of these shift a little bit. Because I am literally working on the pricing and nailing down the specification at the minute. When when you know when I'm I'm back at work later, this is exactly what I would be working on. 
but we plan to open sort of pre-ordering, if you like, in in May. So that may come forward a little bit. If we can do that in April, we would love to. That's that's really going to happen as soon as we get the pricing agreed and we get the green light from HQ. Then we will be we will be pushing to do that as early as we can. Then the the UK public debut will be at the Goodwood Festival of Speed in June. So this will be the first time that that customers will be able to see this car in the in the metal. Opening of ordering proper then will be shortly after in July with first cars to arrive, which will be the, the mild hybrids or, or hybrids as we, we like to refer to them as um, in September. And then the pl- first plug-in hybrids will arrive at the end of the year in December. And the, that's kind of the timeline we're working to at the minute. And there'll, there'll be other things happening in between, but, but this is this is the core of, of what we're working towards at the minute. And when ordering opens, will that initially just be for the hybrid or will you be able to order a PHEV with a long wait? Good question. At the minute, the pricing proposals that I'm doing for HQ are based purely on the mild hybrids. So my suggestion would be that it will just be for the mild hybrids initially. Um, and then the next phase will be the plugins. If the the plugin proposals then come through beforehand and we get a chance to nail those down and announce everything at the same time, personally, I'd love to. I'm sure Damien, uh, Damien Daly, obviously the MD of Alpha, would love to as well. But yeah, I would anticipate it will just be for the mild hybrid solution. Well, if used car prices carry on the way they are, my trading should be twice as valuable as it is at the moment. By then, anyway, I think that, mo- that bubble might burst sometime this year. Brilliant. I think that's probably all we've got time for for this episode. So, um, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us, Rob. No problem at all, guy. Any time. Um, pleasure to talk to you as always. Always great to talk about Sonali. And, and you know, I've, as I said at the beginning, I think I've been an owners' club member for a, a long time. So to, to have the opportunity to do this for me is fantastic. So thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. We had a dig into the archives after we'd spoken to Rob, and we found the report from the 7th Annual Hearts and South Bed Section Rally at Wimpole Hall, with a guest appearance from the Alphasud Register, where Rob won his trophy for best Alphasud, presented to him by current Alphasud Registrar Gary Walker. You can find that report, along with every magazine from 1964 onwards, at archive.arroc-uk.com. You'll need your membership details to log on. We'll be back in two weeks' time on the 13th of March with regular guest and AROC board member Kirsty Hodson to celebrate International Women's Day with a look at some of the important women in Alpha's history and in the club today. Episode 53 will be available to download from 1.30pm from the club's website, Google Podcasts, YouTube, iTunes or wherever you found this one. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.